My guest today is astronomer Dr. Mark Schwalter. Dr. Mark Schwalter is a senior research scientist and principal investigator at the SETI Institute. His research focuses on ring moon systems. He works on some of NASA's highest profile missions to outer planets. He has been a member of Cassini mission science team for nearly a decade. He is frequent user of Hubble Space Telescope and is involved in the observations of Jupiter's rings using New Horizons spacecraft which is on its way to Pluto. Dr. Schwalter has to his credit the discovery of Jupiter's outermost ring, Saturn's moon Pan and two moons and two faint rings around the planet Uranus. Dr. Mark Schwalter is with me on the phone from California. Mark, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Great to be here with them. Thank you. A New Horizons spacecraft is about to reach Pluto. Uh, Pluto is an interesting and complicated alien world. Uh, now we know that four moons orbit around the central binary planet, uh, which consists of Pluto and its large uh, moon Charon. Uh, talk to us about the discovery of uh, the planet Pluto and then its demotion. Uh, how should we describe uh, Pluto now? Uh, what is Pluto? Well, what is Pluto? That's a, that's a good question. I my answer is you can call it whatever you want. Uh, the International Astronomical Union decided in 2006 that it was just too small an object to be called a planet, and they came up with the term dwarf planet to describe Pluto, and now that actually term also, term also describes uh, Ceres, for example, which is um, a very large asteroid. It's actually got a, a spacecraft orbiting it right now, a NASA spacecraft. Uh, so they, used, they invented this term dwarf planet, and I actually think the term dwarf planet is a perfectly sensible term because I also study the giant planets, and compared to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, you got to say, admit it, Pluto is very, very small. It's smaller than the Earth's moon. So uh, dwarf planet is a perfectly reasonable term as far as I'm concerned. They took the things a, one step further in logic than I, I think I agree with that the, the International Astronomical Union did. They said, and a dwarf planet is not a planet. Uh, and I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I think uh, um, I have a dwarf apple tree in my backyard. It still produces apples. I still eat them. If, it's not, if a dwarf apple tree is not an apple tree, then what have I been eating all these years? Uh, I mean, I just don't understand the, the idea that a dwarf planet is not a planet. I think they somehow believe that the children of the world would be afraid to count up past nine, and so rather than make them starting to talk about other large objects, well, large-ish objects like Pluto or Ceres, they, uh, they would just stop the counting at eight, and they would decree that there are eight planets in the solar system. But I just don't understand that. We all understand that there are and a lot of little rivers, and I don't see why we had sh the kids of the world should have a problem understanding that there are a few big planets and a lot of little planets. But that's them, and that's, they didn't ask me. So, so call it whatever you want. Pluto's a planet, a dwarf planet. I, it, doesn't, it doesn't really uh, matter very much to me. But it's a very interesting place, and that's the thing that I think uh, really matters, especially since we have a spacecraft 
that uh, is practically on Pluto's doorstep at this point. Um, my involvement with the with uh, with Pluto science in general goes back to this uh, what we've been talking about all along. I'm a ring guy, and uh, so when uh, other colleagues of mine um, discovered two small moons of of Pluto, they're called uh, they're called uh, Nix and Hydra, discovered in 2005 and 2006, uh, got me thinking. Just for the same reason that I looked for rings of Mars, when you have a small moon. Uh, it puts out dust, and so maybe there could be rings around Pluto. And that was the topic of some Hubble observations that I made back in, uh, let's see, that would be 2011, uh, looking for, we took very, very long exposures of Pluto, did some image processing tricks and some camera tricks to uh, push down all that glare around the planet itself, and we uh, decided to, in order to see if there were any rings there, uh, we didn't find any rings, but we did find uh, a little dot, an extra dot orbiting Pluto, which is now the moon known as Kerberos. And a year after that, we looked at, uh, we looked again. We had some more time on the telescope. We had some more sensitive ways of processing the data, and that's when another little moon, now called Styx, also showed up. So, based on uh, my work with uh, satellites of Pluto. Uh, I've now been added to the uh, science team for New Horizons, and I'm very involved in that, especially since we have uh, the encounter with Pluto coming up in July. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's sort of an accidental Pluto scientist, is the way I describe myself. I didn't have any expectation of ever really thinking about Pluto or even, you know, I mean, it's an interesting place, of course, but I didn't really have any uh, expertise on, on the topic of, that would be relevant to a Pluto flyby until they started finding all these little moons and raising possibilities about rings and so on. And so now I find myself to be the accidental Pluto scientist. And I believe it is hard to observe Pluto from Earth. Not only that it is too far, but uh, you get a lot of stars in the background. Yeah, Pluto is right in front of Sagittarius, the constellation of Sagittarius, which essentially marks the center of the Milky Way galaxy as we see it. So uh, there are, when you look at Pluto in uh, Hubble or any other uh, any other telescope, uh, there is just a huge number of stars in the background. This is very different from the work I've done. Uh, for example, I've used Hubble to look at Uranus and Neptune. Uh, and you pretty much never see a star. There, you see a few of them occasionally going through your field of view, but it doesn't happen very often. Uh, in the case of Pluto, they're there all the time, and it does make the analysis of uh, Pluto data much more difficult because there are so many extra objects that you have to deal with. So perhaps bringing a spacecraft to Pluto was the best uh, way to observe that world? Well, for all kinds of reasons, uh, it's better to do things with the spacecraft. Uh, the best you can do with Pluto is uh, on the Hubble telescope, the size of Pluto, the disk of Pluto as seen from Earth, it, it, uh, it overlaps two pixels of the finest, um, the finest resolution camera on the Hubble telescope. So if you really want to see what's going on in Pluto, you can't, you can't have just two pixels. You need to send a camera there. Uh, that's going can resolve it, resolve the surface in all kinds of detail. Uh, so that's uh, there. There, there are always good reasons for going to Pluto, and and this is just one. This is just one more. 
please tell us about the new Horizon spacecraft. Uh, I believe it is now approaching Pluto and every week uh, uh, the resolution of images is getting better. Uh, so what will be the resolution of images when it arrives at Pluto and uh, how close it will get to Pluto? It's, uh, it's going to fly something like 20,000 kilometers uh, from off the surface of Pluto. It will get, uh, uh, the cameras will get resolution that's about 70 meters per pixel, I believe. Uh, so, you know, that's, uh, that's a, you know, a, a, I was going to say football field for your listeners. It would be, well, just any kind of sports field you could easily see if it's on the, uh, on the surface of Pluto. You, can, you could see if they were there buildings and things like that, parking lots, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm not predicting any of those things, of course, but that's just to illustrate the kind of, kind of resolution we're going to get. Uh, it's, uh, it's a relatively small spacecraft. Uh, they wanted to put a small spacecraft on a big rocket so they could get it moving very, very quickly. And that is how they've been able to get it from Earth to Pluto in just, uh, well, about a decade. It was launched in 2006. Uh, it, uh, the, as I said, it's a small spacecraft on a big rocket. They launched it as fast as it could go. It crossed the orbit of the moon in about eight hours after launch. It reached Jupiter, where we actually had uh, a great science encounter in uh, uh, 13 months. So by, by, it was launched in, I think, February of 2006. And by March of 2007, we were flying past Jupiter and looking at uh, volcanoes on the moon Io and seeing some amazing things that way. And uh, then the Jupiter flyby gave it a little bit of extra speed, so it is now, as I said, it's on Pluto's doorstep. It gets to Pluto on July 14th. Uh, it does a flyby. It doesn't. It can't stop. It uh, is not an orbiter. It's just going to be a flyby. But we will have a very, very close-up look at Pluto very soon. And how much time we will have uh, for observations uh, if this is just a flyby? Well, there are observations going on now. Uh, I don't, uh, and in fact, uh, I'm very excited about the fact that although I haven't been the one doing the data analysis uh, on this part of the work, um, they have recovered not just Karen, which is very large and bright, of course, but uh, they have now already seen sticks, uh, I'm sorry, Nix and Hydra, the, the two larger of the four small moons. Uh, so I suspect it's only going to be a matter of a month or so before we actually pick up the smaller guys, uh, sticks and Kerberos as well. Uh, that's just accomplishing that is makes me happy, of course. But uh, it will be uh, in the last days before the encounter uh, that uh, things will really start to uh, sharpen up in tremendous, beautiful detail. And uh, so that's when we're going to be seeing the best data Although we'll be analyzing all the data between now and then, and as we leave Pluto, we'll also be continuing to image it from, from, the, far side of, of, from the far side of the sun. What are main observations that uh, scientists uh, intend to make and uh, expectations that scientists have in their minds as New Horizons spacecraft uh, flies by Pluto? Yeah, that's a, well, there's a betting pool, I can tell you that, about, uh, among some of the scientists about what they're going to find. Um, the, and the answer, of course, is we don't know. Uh, we can say a few things about Pluto, though, that may tell us this is, not, this is going to be a very, very interesting flyby. Uh, we don't have great images from the ground or from Hubble, but we have pretty good ones that we at least now have a map of Pluto. It's a very, very fuzzy, blurry map. 
but it tells us that there are some regions of Pluto that are as bright as snow, and there are other regions of Pluto that are as dark as asphalt um, tar, for example. So this is a very, very um, interesting, it's got an interesting surface. We don't know what it's going to look like, but we sure know it's going to be interesting. We know that there are active processes going on that are uh, moving material around. We know it has a thin atmosphere. We know that uh, there are places probably where methane ice is accumulating, probably giving us those very bright regions and other areas that are being cleaned of the methane for reasons we don't perhaps know right now. Uh, the, the, probably the best analogy we've got for Pluto is that there is a large moon of uh, Neptune called Triton that Voyager 2 did a flyby in uh, 1989, and that showed a very, very uh, complicated world of some very, very young surfaces that show no craters, some other older areas where there are a lot of craters. Uh, it showed volcanoes, and so one of the things that people are speculating about is whether there are uh, volcanoes on, on Pluto. It's uh, something that I'm kind of holding out hope for, but uh, of course we won't know till till the flyby. And after uh, this uh, Pluto flyby, uh, what is next uh, for the New Horizons spacecraft? Uh, where it will go from there? Yes, it is. Um, well, it will, it's, it's going in a straight line. I mean, that's one of the consequences of the fact that Pluto is very, very small and we've got a spacecraft that's moving very, very fast, is that it doesn't really get deflected by Pluto very much. So it goes by in just about a straight line. Uh, we do have a little bit of option for where we direct it. And there was a, a fantastic result that some of my colleagues had. They spent a huge amount of time uh, on the Hubble telescope with the uh, cooperation of the uh, Space Telescope Science Institute, who was remarkably, uh, remarkably good to us in that regard. Uh, we had the time we needed to survey the sky around Pluto, and we have finally found a small object called a Kuiper Belt object. Uh, it's like an asteroid, but it's out much further away. It's past Pluto. And now that we've got the opportunity, at least, to target and fly by a Kuiper Belt object coming up um, a few years after, the, a few years after uh, the, the Pluto flyby itself. So there may be another, another science mission for, for New Horizons after this July, which will be to see our first, get our first close-up look at, uh, at the Kuiper Belt. And whatever direction it takes after Pluto flyby, uh, for how long uh, we will be able to communicate uh, with the spacecraft? How much fuel is there and how long it will stay in the communication range? Uh, will this spacecraft uh, follow the footsteps uh, of Voyager spacecrafts? Uh, yes, it will. It will be operational, well, we hope it will be operational for, for many, many years to come. The, uh, the, the power in the form of uh, the nuclear generator that is on the, on the spacecraft, eventually the, uh, the plutonium just, you go through a half-life or two and it has much less power, uh, as, of course, has been happening for Voyager 2. There's a reason why none of the other instruments operate on Voyager now. It's just detecting magnetic, uh, magnetic fields and the like. Uh, it's because those are very low-power instruments, and those are the only things that uh, it still has enough power to do. Uh, but so in the case of New Horizons, we'll do the flyby. We'll actually have to spend probably nine months just getting all that data back down to Earth. So I guess I want to warn everybody that uh, the Pluto science is going to come out a little bit at a time. 
after the flyby. We'll get some of the really great stuff in July, but uh, we're going to have to wait for a lot of the a lot of things as well. Um, but then uh, it will do the. Uh, we hope it will do the flyby of a Kuiper Belt object a couple of years later, and then after that, it'll just continue sailing off into the uh, Kuiper Belt. Now it is not moving as fast as Voyager One or Voyager Two. So uh, we're never, it's never going to overtake them in any sense. Those are still the fastest moving objects that we humans have ever sent anywhere. Uh, but, uh, but New Horizons will continue off into the galaxy. Is this going to be third spacecraft uh, that leaves the solar system after Voyager 1 and Voyager 2? Well, we have uh, Voyager and one and Voyager two are unique in that they are they're leaving the solar system and they are also still operational. We of course did have Pioneers ten and eleven. They were uh, uh, somewhat less sophisticated spacecraft that did flybys of uh, Jupiter and Saturn a couple years before Voyager, and they are also leaving the solar system. But they uh, they stopped operating. They stopped working uh, years ago. So uh, we certainly have high hopes that we'll be uh, still talking to New Horizons uh, when it crosses the heliopause and, and leaves our solar system. Uh, talk to us about your role uh, in, in this program. I mean, I'm a person involved in all of the science in general, but uh, I have a kind of interesting role a couple of us do as we're, uh, you, could have, you could imagine saying that we're on the, uh, we're in the crow's nest of the ship. We'll be uh, uh, on uh, on duty starting um, more than a month before the spacecraft gets to, to Pluto, looking at all of those images that come down with very, very dated software to just make sure there is no moon we don't know about, or even worse, a ring we don't know about uh, orbiting Pluto, because we're going to be flying a spacecraft past Pluto at 14 kilometers per second, very fast, uh, something the size of a... Um, uh, millimeter or a couple of millimeters could could easily damage a critical component of the spacecraft and, and that would be very bad news. We could lose lose everything we were hoping to see to learn about the planet. So so it's a, it's a kind of a new idea that uh, since we are flying into uncharted territory, we really need somebody on the crow's nest with the telescopes out looking ahead and making sure there are no rocky shoals as we uh, as we approach Pluto. And so that's kind of a, an interesting job that I'll be doing or as part of a small team. And uh, it's going to could have some tense moments in there for all we know, because if we find something that might be dangerous or we think might be dangerous, we have to make some decisions about do we fly as we plan past, the, past uh, Pluto or do we maybe shift to a slightly different flyby that would make it a little bit safer that might avoid some of that, that debris that we're suddenly discovering. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a very interesting time. So uh, so that's uh, that's the way I get to spend my uh, my June and July is uh, looking out for dangers ahead for the spacecraft. And if you spot uh, an anomaly, uh, would you have enough time to send a command uh, to New Horizons spacecraft uh, from such a long distance? And would you have enough time uh, to get this command executed to deal with uh, any anomaly? Yes, well, there's a very strict schedule that's been set up now. Uh, the last chance to actually change the trajectory of the spacecraft is eight days before the flyby. So you're talking about something like July uh, 6th. But 
it's actually that's a very that's a very tough thing. We don't want to have to use that. So we're probably most concerned about uh, uh, making a decision something like uh, 11 or so days out from the uh, from the from Jupiter. I'm sorry, did I say that? Uh, 11 days out from Pluto, we'll be uh, we'll be looking. Uh, making a decision at that point, and that will probably be the final decision. Uh, my hope is that, I mean, I sort of say this against my own scientific interests, my hope is that we don't see any rings. I don't think we will, actually, because uh, we've already looked pretty closely, and the, the way the system works, the dynamics of the system, just make it a place where a lot of rings are going to be unstable. So I think the spacecraft will be fine. I think that uh, even though I would maybe like as a scientist to see some rings around Pluto, but at least uh, I'd rather have a safe flyby even if there are no rings. Uh, so, yes, mm -hmm. it, will, uh, it will just be an interesting time, but we will have some decisions to make uh, several points during the weeks leading up to the encounter. And when exactly you and your colleagues uh, will start managing uh, these uh, crucial aspects uh, of the mission? Yeah, so we, uh, we, the data that we get from the New Horizons spacecraft start to really be significantly better than the best we can do with the Hubble telescope around 39 days out. Uh, so that's early June at this point. So uh, come early June, uh, we're going to be working on that data set very, very hard. And then, of course, as we get closer, the data keeps getting better. So, so we'll have to be uh, on, on top of things because there might be something that we didn't quite see in the data from 39 days out that we will see in the data a week later. So we'll be, uh, we'll be uh, very, very busy uh, looking very, very carefully uh, at what we've got. And then the decision points become more and more closely spaced as the data are getting better and better uh, as well. So it'll be a, a real challenge for all of us, I think. SETI has launched our Pluto campaign and has invited public to help name features uh, on Pluto. Uh, talk to us about uh, this initiative. Yeah, we uh, decided that... Um, it's, uh, we have an opportunity with Pluto that we have no idea what we're going to see, but we know that we're going to need to name things. I mean, all planetary services have features that we give names to. It makes it much easier, of course, to talk about them. You don't have to say that big crater on Mimas. You can say Herschel, and everybody knows what you're talking about. So we're probably expecting to have, you know, 100 or more different features that we need to name once we see Pluto and the big moon Charon up close. And we won't be able to just invent names on the fly at the time that we need them, so we have to assemble the list of names now. So we're naming things we haven't seen yet. But we decided that we wanted the whole world to have a chance to play mapmaker with us. And so we have a website. It's at uh, rpluto.seti.org. And uh, you can go to that site, and you can vote on the long list of names, and you can propose your own names. Uh, and we'll take that all into consideration as we uh, as we start to map out the surface of Pluto. After New Horizon program, uh, what next? Uh, what are other projects uh, uh, that you are involved in? Uh, well, we're certainly looking ahead to further exploration of the solar system. There are uh, missions uh, NASA is working on to uh, send an orbiter to uh, Europa. I think I mentioned that earlier in the discussion. Uh, and that's going to be a fascinating mission. 
Uh, we've also, uh, there are all kinds of missions being planned. Uh, of course, the limiting factor is always, uh, there are certainly more ideas, more good ideas and more good science questions than we have the budget to answer. So that's probably a limiting factor as always. But uh, we also have the um, James Webb Space Telescope going up in the next couple of years to uh, take over the work that the Hubble Telescope has been doing, and it will be a much more powerful instrument. Uh, there's, a, there's quite an opportunity, lots of things going on, but I always think that um, the fun thing about science is that there's going to be stuff that comes along that we had no idea, the things that we've been looking for. Uh, for me, that example of that is the uh, little rings we found around some asteroids recently in the last couple of years. Uh, nobody, nobody had a plan that I know of to say, yeah, we really need to go find all those rings around asteroids. But there they were in some, some of my colleagues' data. So uh, I think the big surprises most often will come from, from things that we're not even looking for. We're just uh, going to be surprised. Dr. Mark Schwalter, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Oh, this has been fantastic. I've, I've, uh, I've enjoyed talking to you, Wasim. I really appreciate this. Thank you and goodbye. All right. Thanks a lot.